0: You are now listening to The Jason D'Amico Show. Check two, check one, two. Yep, good. We're ready if you are. I'm ready. Greetings. Welcome back to The Jason D'Amico Show. We are here live in person, which is really cool because it's been an interesting five months of uh, quarantine And, yeah, it feels like nothing's changed, which is great. But um, we've been trying to piece together this scheduling for a while now with this guest. And I'm honored to have him here in the studio. Um, I'll I'll call him the song placement, production placement guru. (laughs) But, uh, He's he's been on the NBC. He's been on NBC The Voice. His, his work has been on NBC The Voice. He's been on thirty plus other channels with his music. Moonshiners, Brain Games, for example. A Oxygen channels, National Geographic, many many more. Um, a lot of other great, mysterious, interesting stories about this fellow. Please welcome to the show, my very good friend, Mister Dean Caputo. Thanks, Jason. Good to see you, brother. Beautiful Harley outside. I uh I got I got to open up with that because that's just it's like alpine white.
1: Harley calls this particular color Morocco Gold, and in the right reflection, you can see the specks of gold in that. Wow. But yeah, it's white for the most part. Yeah, maybe in Phoenix. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so your your career is. Really interesting, um, multi-faceted, multi faceted, multi, multi genre, uh, and I mean even outside of the music industry, we may talk a little bit more about that, but I'll leave that up to you. Your beginning stages. Let's talk about how you got into music.
1: Uh, my father, really, um, my father, upstate New York, he was in the drum battery of a drum and bugle corps, small regional, I would say, not DCI, not, you know, the national competitors, but the the local stuff, upstate New York. And they would pound two by fours in a barn all winter and all spring before they saw a drum. So they were in that barn and they were pounding fifths and sevenths and ninths and elevenths and thirteenths and fifteenths and paradiddles, double paradiddles, (gasps) flam taps and drags all winter long. He never read music. They had this, they had their entire show Memorized. They didn't see the drums until probably springtime because they had to start marching for position and finding their spots to perform. Right, right. And so he did that before he went in the navy. When he and he was very well versed in music. And he'd come home, he had come home from the navy with stacks of albums, vinyl, anything from you know James Brown and the the, the musical uh, soundtrack for Shaft. So R and B all the way to jazz and you know, Cat Steve, uh, Jimmy the Cat Smith, for instance. And I learned a lot about music listening to his vinyls. After, uh, well, actually also in high school, he had a 62 Strat. And they played in a band. He played in a band where there was uh, three Strats, a Strat bass, and a drummer. And they were called the Decoys. And they played all the 50s music that was hot at the time. And they gigged, and whenever this band Santo and Johnny came around, say to Lake George or Troy, New York, or Albany or Saratoga, my, they would call my father's band the Decoys to warm up for him. He wow. still got, he still has the posters. Wow, wow! Uh, so you know that Santo and Johnny's major hit was was it Sleepwalk? Sleep Sleepwalk, yeah. Right. and maybe you could interject that as background, you know, when you edit, <laughs> but uh, it's a great melody, and. Almost everybody's heard it. They don't know who it is or the name of the song, but right. they'll be like, ah, I know that song. It's right. been in movies. It's been in commercials, whatever. So fast forward to when I'm nine years old and my father's got an old hollow body Gibson laying around and he heard me pick it up and go through the strings and start playing some melodies and you know two string chords. And he started to show me some chords. It was missing a string. The following Christmas... Santa brought me an acoustic guitar and an Alfred's uh, guitar book. And so that's when I started messing around. But I was never the guy to practice. And I always felt like I had some sense of knowing how good I could possibly get, no matter how much I practiced. Mm -hmm. And so I would get frustrated not getting any better, and I would put it down for months. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, through my teenage years, I got back into it and I started playing with friends in garages. And I'm that type of guy, and I'm, I'm, you could probably relate to this. You've ever been in class and the teacher's given a lecture and you're sitting back, not even listening, saying to yourself, I could teach this class so much better than this guy. <laughs> or have you ever been in church and you're listening to the, to the priest do his homily and, you, and, and you're saying, I could be such a way better priest than this guy because I would tell a story about the gospel that we're learning You know, or anything like that. I got tired of playing cover tunes, although I learned how to play guitar, really playing Credence and Robert Cray stuff. yeah, Old 60s stuff or Southern rock. So easy to play by ear. Um, But I wanted to start writing my own stuff, so we did. And so that's where songwriting came along. But again, never practiced, uh, never studied, and um, only got so good to play. So I kind of just never pursued it. Um, so I got accepted to colleges like Berkeley College of Music for their sound engineering program. Wow, cool. And you know, uh, Lowell University, which is now UMass Lowell, their same program, sound recording engineer. But uh, they threw a wrench in that and they said, um, well, you need to learn how to read music and you need to carry an instrument all four years. Jazz, ensemble, orchestra, or for the case of um, Lowell, marching band. So I started to take lessons on how to read music. And about the third time through, I was like, this ain't happening. So I went to the Marine Corps. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When I got out, I sustained a a sports injury in the Marine Corps. So I pursued that as a career Mm -hmm. as an athletic trainer. And uh, it wasn't until probably the early 90s that I got back into music. It was somebody that I met in my life whose family was also in music. Father, herself, her sister, everybody, they had albums, they were gigging, they were writing. And so I started, I kind of came to terms with, like I gave up the rock star dream a long time ago. You know, I I sat on the drums the first time in my life and I played a beat as if it was like from a past life or it came natural. All four limbs were just, but I was never going to be a great drummer. Wow. I have a natural talent, but, and I never pursued it, but I, I know I would never understand what drummers understand about what they're doing, especially syncopated polyrhythms, forget it. I love to listen to it, but I could never play it. And so this person said, look, you did all of that stuff, you gave up on the rock star dream, but your stuff is good. Why don't you just write and pitch to other acts? Hmm. So immediately started to study the mu- music industry, And at the time, and things have changed drastically since then, but at that time, the country music industry was the easiest to infiltrate because barely any of the artists were writing their own material. George Strait, for instance, never wrote a song in his life. Wow. But when he was ready to put out an album, they put the feelers out, and they would get thousands of songs for George to listen to and his A&R people and his manager and his producer and his engineer, they would filter thousands. And you thinking the best of the songwriters are in Nashville. And then there's thousands of other, uh, songwriters that are outside the hub that are sending stuff in. I mean, so I went out and got songwriters market guide and tried to get some tricks of the trade and started pitching and calling. And in fact, uh, I brought a little something here today that I found this morning just for this. Oh boy. Robert Cray was a big influence, uh, kind of intermediately in my life. Early on was, like I said, Southern Rock, John Fogarty and Credence. Easy stuff to play, but great tunes and fun to play. But Robert Cray was my first pitch, and through the Songwriters Market Guide, I pitched to his agency called the Rosebud Agency in San Francisco. I didn't know he was completely self-contained at the time. I thought he was going to love my stuff and put it on his next album. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're a rookie, this is, these are the things that you're thinking. So here's my first uh, rejection letter. Oh, Boy, it, it wasn't just the Rosebud Agency that I contacted. I contacted Arista Records, his A and R rep, and I still remember the gatekeeper's name, like the A and R rep secretary, Eileen. I think it was Eileen Cleary, something like that. And I spoke to her directly, and it finally hit me, and it came to, uh, I came to terms with Bobby Cray is self-contained and. Right, He might do a cover of somebody great, like Buddy, Rick, Buddy Guy or something, but right. he writes his own stuff.
0: I love how this is the old font. Yeah. And AOL.com. Yeah. You know, it's definitely 1996. It's awesome.
1: Now, I have a stack of these, but this is my first, and I was honored to get it because a lot of times, songwriters who didn't study the industry and don't know what they're doing, they never hear anything back. Right. These people took the time to say, hey, man, uh, thanks for pitching us this song, um, but we just don't have a place for it right now. You know, best of luck. They took the time to respond to me, and I have a whole stack of these rejection letters saved in a folder. You know, despite having studied the industry, I was going about it all wrong. You know, I was recording on a four-track Tascam and sending, you know, bouncing tracks, you know, mixing, finalizing, and sending it out. Well... I go back and listen to that stuff now and i cringe the stuff i was sending to alligator records or curbside records or irritating records or even publishers um so i continued to write and uh i continued to pitch and then somewhere around i think it was maybe 2009 in a very metaphysical spiritual way i came across production music now all the time prior to that, I was writing, I was seeking writing a hit, Grammy winning, Grammy nominated gold album, you know, the 9.2 cents, you know, per song, per album sold on a gold or platinum. You know, I was looking for, you know, obviously the uh, performance royalties for right. Radio Play, and I was obviously looking for mechanical royalties on the sales. I was trying to write the hit as an outside songwriter. And in 2009, I came across production music in a very strange way, like look in another direction. And I did. I began to research and look into production music and it relaxed me and gave me a lot of freedom, almost freestyle, because now I don't have to worry about uh, writing in that small container of verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, Bridge, chorus, 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 outtake, you know, whatever. Now I could do whatever I want. I could write a 12-second sting or I could write a minute, six second you know bed that's got a great groove and it's got chunks of 12 second things and then it changes and brings in drums 12 seconds later and then it brings in something else and then you can step it all up to full production at the 40 second mark and then step it back down and roll out of it and a a music supervisor could use the entire thing or any 10 12 second portion of that thing right it's very marketable there's a lot of freedom and liberation in that and i began to write that and I began to get picked up by publishers all around the world. And my, actually, you know, this is a—I don't share this with, with a lot of people, but um, insofar as digital audio workstations, I got a MacBook, and I got Logic Express, kind of Logic Lite, but I had no idea what I was doing. You know, it's been years since I worked the Tascam Four Track, which was a m- enormous, monstrous hunk of equipment. Yeah. So I went to GarageBand first and started to mess around with the click and drag and loops and then, you know, customizing loops and th- tweaking however I wanted and putting stuff together. And my first placement was on uh, Pawn Kings, Pawn Stars, Pawn Stars. It was about a 12 second twelve second uh, blues slide guitar called uh, Walking the Tracks or something like that. And it was at a very tense moment between the star and his secretary about... You know, he, he bought one of his own pieces that were being auctioned and he hadn't paid for it himself. She was after him and she called him out on it and it was like, there was that 12 second and I was, and I got my first royalties and I've gotten wow. royalties every quarter since then. Wow. Through BMI and also kind of another odd publisher I have that puts me into some odd kind of placements like web commercial for a Czechoslovakian energy drink, say, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, that's, that's where I am today. Now, the last few quarters, my, my, uh, my royalties have been under 100 bucks, So I think I need to get back in there after I finish a couple of things that I have going on and producing some new stuff. Because mu- music supervisors love to review the new stuff that a publisher or, or a, um, a music library has. Right. Hey, we're looking for this, this, and this. All right, here's a, here's a whole slew of material. you can No, but we, where's the new stuff? Where's the stuff that just been uploaded like the last 60 days? And they'll jump on it. Right. Because it's obviously probably never been used before. Right. For instance, like Jingle Punks, I think they went exclusive. It got to a point where it was uh, non-exclusive, but I, uh, I remember them sending out emails a few years ago saying, listen, you got 45 more tracks to upload as non-exclusive, but after that, if you want to upload them here, they have to be exclusive because there was a lot of overlay. Right. Right. And I can get into that when we get into the music business. Sure. But, you know, there's been some major mistakes made at major inter, uh, national corporate levels like during Super Bowl commercials that have, you know, gotten the attention of music libraries and music publishers and uh, pointed them towards, yeah, we, we need to go exclu- ex- strictly exclusive. So, like I was studying the... Uh, the country music industry and trying to pitch to artists and publishers and barbers or hair salons or the bartender or whoever could get the material, you know, the gardener, if he could get the material. In fact, I pitched directly to, at the, at the Raleigh State, at the North Carolina State Fair in Raleigh, I pitched directly to uh, Jimmy Johnson, his people. I badged my, well, <laughs> I got backstage and I pitched them a, a Nashville produced <laughs> song. And uh, who's the other guy from Chapel Hill had some stardom? And I don't mean Eric Church, way before him. And his uh, last song, I think that hit, was Alyssa Lies. He's local. Oh. Black hair. He was a kid at the time. Not, uh, he, had, he was a three-name guy. I went and saw him at the State Fair, too, and I pitched to his folks. But uh, nothing came out of that. A three-name guy. I don't. I don't know. Not um, Jason Michael Carroll, but somebody else. So, like along those lines, he's a local guy. He 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 was on a label in Nashville, hmm. um, and he had some hits, and he kind of just disappeared into obscurity. Hmm. I don't know. So anyway, as <laughs> I was studying the music, the country music industry. Uh, now that I found. You know I was studying the industry as a whole and I had a lot of contact with a lot of different people and i I got ripped off, I got schmoozed, i no. got led in the wrong directions um I made all the mistakes that other songwriters... i I guess it's kind of like this when i when I was given lectures at the school of uh living arts in Raleigh yeah uh through our mutual friend um And I was speaking out about the music industry and the music business because, and I was running songwriting groups, I was coming across songwriter after songwriter, they were writing thousands of songs that only their mom heard. You know, at some point you have to drop the pen, put on your business hat, start marketing your own material, uploading it, pitching to publishers, music libraries, getting it out there to people to get placed, you know. Um, if you're not going to be the artist and you're not doing things to get heard and get a following and get noticed by an A&R rep, then at least get your music out there so that somebody else might pick it up. Or as in production music, it might get played in the background or even a theme of a television show or a movie. Um, I would explain to these kids, stop writing at some point and market your stuff. And here's, I've made all the mistakes that you can make, but what I'm going to tell you next is how to avoid those. Right. Here's what to look for, and here's what to avoid. So I had the the, the blessed opportunity to get ripped off, make mistakes, spend way too much time, way too much money getting to where I wanted to be. Um, but I'm able now. I'm in a position now where I can share those mistakes so other songwriters don't.
0: That's that's a really good synopsis as far as like how you got to where you are. And I, I'm curious. We were talking right before we went on. You know, entrepreneurship, the music business in general, for creatives. And I, I'll speak candidly about myself. Uh, yeah, it's hard throwing on that hat. And I'm a business major. And I've <laughs> and I've said this many. Like this is not a. You know, I've said this many times on the shows. Like multiple times. Uh, it's a whole. Di- it's just a whole different psyche. How how did you, how did you, wh- wh- was it a struggle for you personally or did you ever, when, when did it click that you had to sell, constantly be selling, constantly be
1: pitching? It's like that first television placement and, um, well, it's like this. I gave up the rock star dream. I gave up trying to write a hit because now everybody's self-contained primarily, right? Bobby Cray was self-contained back then, but everybody's writing their own. I mean, people are becoming singers because they're songwriters and they're playing their own stuff. It's like uh, Michael Bolton. is Wasn't it Michael Bolton who was writing tons of hits and says, I want to do my own album. They're like, well, you know, you really don't have the voice for that. Come on. And he's, he had 100 hits before he even cut his own album. I'm pretty sure that's the guy. Kind of a graspy voice. Well. He started, you know, writing for himself, and he put out some albums, and they were hits. And you know, he made wow. it. Wow. When it came to production music, I had been through the ringer with marketing. I I knew I wasn't going to perform. I was sending out to studio, or you know, doing instrumentals myself as my own producer. Once I got into Logic, and then you know, Logic Pro, and I was paying to pitch, which you absolutely should avoid because all kind of music X-ray and all of these music libraries where you're paying to get heard avoid it's an that should be avoided at all costs i spent so much money just trying oh, i just want the opportunity to be heard if you listen to my stuff and you don't like it at least i know you heard it and you're giving me an honest opinion and i was paying five bucks three bucks ten bucks 25 bucks to to pitch my material for some industry expert to to hear it and then nothing would come of it and i was like this is this is, this is not the way to go, and I'm burning through a lot of cash. Right. So I continued to study, and I found music libraries, um, jingle punks, for instance, which every one of my television placements has come through jingle punks. They're great. Now, it's a little bit of selling your soul. I've hoarded out my music to anybody that would take it just to get heard, just to get played, just to get kind of... Affirmation, Yeah, your stuff's mm. good, man. Because, look, it's being played on this or that or the other thing. And I put it out there. Really, I hoard it out there. Sold my soul just to get it out there. And now, because of that, um, for the most part, jingle, jingle punks will have a blanket license with music supervisors. Those are the guys that go out and collect the music and start putting it in as background and soundscapes for their programs. Um, the blanket license is, I assume so many seconds or this much over a minute or background music, you can just take it. And we'll collect the the back-end royalties off the cue sheet. Right. Which is kind of disheartening. Because I had like a mid—I almost my entire song uh, called Redneck Texpert was used on toddlers and tiaras. Now, it wasn't Honey Boo Boo that was dancing to it, but it was some, you know, co-star that was in that little mini beauty pageant, and she danced to almost the, like a minute 40 of this song. And it wasn't background, because it was up front, and the girl was, you know, they had some dialogue going over it. was over like a
0: featured, you know. semi feature It was like kind of soundtrack-esque, almost.
1: Well, she's on stage, they're running my music, and the right. mother's, you know, coaching her and telling her what to do. I had right. the whole clip. I got nothing up front for that, and because... I don't know, TNT or CNW, whatever channel that was on, you know, low audience, low, low licensing fees. I didn't collect a whole lot of money. It it repeated. Thank God for syndication, because that show must have, you know, repeated itself hundreds of times. And, you know, every time it plays, you get paid. But it's not like Mike Post on down, 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 down. law and order. Right. Any time of day, <laughs> pull up your guide and it's on three different channels oh and you're probably God. marathoning. That dude's worth $55 million. And we were born on the exact same day. Me, wow. that's not even his real name. It's, it's like Postovich. He's like from the Eastern Bloc of Europe originally, his family. Yeah. But he, he changed it to Mike Post. That guy has put all his kids through Ivy League college. Has a mansion, a boat, motorcycle, whatever he wants, because every time Law and Order plays, he gets paid. Jeez. Uh, so anyway, I studied all that. I was I was paying to get heard, and I found Jingle Punks. And you have you have to audition. They listen to a few things, and they're like, "You're good to go." So you got to upload the songs. You got to do all your metadata, descriptions, and what yep. instruments, whatever. Yep. And I got my first placement, which I didn't know for probably 14 months when I got my BMI statement, or maybe I had some service. It's like a biometric music service where they're listening to every channel in North America, probably probably now the world. You upload your music in the highest format you can get, probably Wave, right? And it gets put into a a biometric database and they're listening to every channel. They're scanning it. And if there's a blip of something that sounds like yours they put it in your queue it's flagged, you review yeah. it and you can assure that you got you're getting paid now if it was yesterday you're not going to know BMI's royalties for that <laughs> quarter are going to come out 8 10 12 months from now but you can cross reference that's how i knew wow wow um so once you get that placement you're like oh snap <laughs> <laughs> that's an affirmation that my stuff is good. It's right. worthy of being played on cable television. So now you're writing and you're producing. And as soon as you're done with that piece and it's perfected to the best that you think you can do with it. Now you're mastering it. You're splitting it up. The stems, some stings, some transitions, some bumpers, and you're uploading all that into jingle punks because a music supervisor is going to come by and you're going to get another placement. So it was like a, you know, it's kind of like, you were after that hit, that first hit, and uh, that's what that's what changed my whole. Creatives hate to be on the business side of the desk, but when your but when your creative addiction is being fed because of the marketing and the business aspect that you pursued, you're willing to then do it, it. Then it's, then it, it's yeah, worth it.
0: It's a cyclical. Yeah,
1: yeah. The other publisher that I mainly or music library that I mainly use is Audio Sparks. Their upload is grueling. It's probably 20 pages, but, you know, um, they have kind of like an, uh, an XM radio type of format, and I have a ton of tracks, maybe 30 tracks on their radio, and that's really what brings in my money uh, for royalties with them. It's outside of um, the performing rights organizations. It's outside the pros. They're direct license from the songwriters and the creators. So it's a whole different world over there. Once you get a placement, man, it feels great. And then you get another one and another one. And, man, whenever I – you know, very few cue sheets end up in your BMI uh, royalty catalog – BMI BMI catalog. But some of the cue sheets do end up there. So you can almost find out real time if you scroll your catalog at – I don't know how ASCAP does it, but sometimes I'll go into my BMI catalog and kind of scroll – and I'll see some cue sheets pop up like NBC, The Voice. When I saw that, you know, I, I was almost in tears. Granted, it was a 12 second, 20 second, 42 second, you know, background from some country artist that was going to audition from Arkansas and then went back to his hometown and, his, you know, Grammy sitting on the porch, you know, you know, sipping tea. I don't know. But it was there. And let me tell you, the money is ridiculous. Right you know i might have blind auditions you know nine let's say a 12 second cue that played once cuz they never repeat those in the country you know once once that once that program airs regardless of what where they are it never repeats they have blind auditions that's it it plays once so i'm a third co-writer with some canadian guys one in costa rica one in montreal of you know redneck expert. let's say Twelve seconds once. I think my pay was 180 bucks, which means those guys through SoCan and got 180 each. Twelve seconds once. Wow, wow. So yeah, network television is where you want to be. Let me let me talk. Let me ask you about your creative
0: process then, and then we'll we'll get back to kind of like the music business side of things. But what is there a formula for you?
1: Is it just kind of if there's a. If there's a million ways to write a song, I'm still checking off the boxes. Right. Everyone's different. And I'm not sure that that any two were even close. In fact, there's been times, and I'm sure so many other songwriters, composers, uh, creators of music um, will attest to this. So many times I sat down to compose one thing and came out the other end completely different. You know, there were there were times where I sat down to write a blues song cuz my heart was aching at the time. You know, emotions are your best muse, yes. your best fuel. Yeah. If you're not going through bad things in life, you probably shouldn't even be writing music. <laughs> <laughs> because that's where the best music comes from, the deepest of our emotions. And I may even in my rough times have sat down to write something, you know, heartachey blues. And come out with kind of an inspirational, uh, uplifting outlook. Kind of songs like, "How did I even get here?" Right. I mean, how did this happen? Right. So sometimes, um, spirit takes you over. Maybe helps you look. Writing for me, playing for me is is a catharsis. You know, it helps you drain some of that emotion. It's, it fuels you, but you need to get rid of it because it's toxic, and you need to overcome it. So creating is a way to do that. Creating, I think, in Buddhist uh, philosophy is also a a manner of prayer. If you have God-given talent and you're utilizing that talent and you are focused, it's like a meditation when you're creating that work. And as you produce that work, it's in essence to them, it becomes, it's like prayer. Well, as a Christian, I can relate to that. God-given talent, indeed. As as unworthy as it may be, because I'm never going to be necessarily I may never be invited to the Grammys or nominated or have a, a a theme on a network television show. I should in my eyes, but I I may not. That doesn't limit how I look at uh, my success because how many people do you know? You may know a few, but how many people does anybody in the general public know anybody who's had music on television? Very few people. I mean, granted, The technology is cheap, easy to use, and every kid's in his basement right now creating music, especially during the shutdown. Yeah. And if they do enough research, they're going to know how to get it out there to the industry and get it heard and maybe get it placed. So the competition now is a million times more fierce than when I started and when I was doing it even back in 2009 and 10 when I was first getting television placements. Um, But the process is emotion. I have to have the motivation and the time I can't sit down for five minutes and throw an idea down. Right, I need to have that road paved for as far as I can see. Right, otherwise it's going to be interrupted, and and so and therefore the flow will be stopped, and I can't afford that.
0: The flow, and that it's it's funny that you say that because that was like a couple minutes earlier when you were talking. It was that was the word that kept coming to mind, and the the flow of things. One of the, especially during quarantine, one of the things that I realized is just how vital that is for me, is getting into that place. And it's amazing, and you'll attest to this, I'm sure. You know, you're in the studio doing your thing, and hours and hours and hours go, but it, it's just like time stops. Every problem just disappears. And then you have to come back to reality.
1: Your time stops, but the clock doesn't because when you look up, it's been 13 hours and you're just now starting to feel like your eyes are burning. Your neck is stiff. It's strange. You're almost dizzy. It's strange. Your legs, your muscles are stiff and you get up and you're, oh man, I need to go to bed. Do you think
0: at that point, is it really just kind of the the internal spirit that is... at that point your body just snap it, it kind of snaps your consciousness back to here because you could just keep going and going and going
1: and going and going if Physi- physiologically i think you can't so i think although spirit was strong god's spirit was moving through you and you were focused and intense on something you love to do and things are coming out right and you're fixing the things that didn't and things are clicking But at some point, physiologically, your body says, oh, it's time to quit. You got a lot down. You're not, you know, nothing's lost in this. Now it's a matter of polish and edit and production. Everything else is production. The creation is there. Go get some sleep. Yeah. Physiologically, I think, overcomes spirit at some point where you just can't go any further. But spirit made, you know, God's spirit got you to the point where you could rest now because... All that enough mud is on the wall to stick that you get up tomorrow with fresh ears and fresh eyes and you're you're wholly refreshed. You're like, oh yeah, I could see I was getting tired here, right? And you right. polish that up or take it out or redo it. But the majority's there, and now you have something that you feel good about your creation. Lars Ulrich uh, talks about
0: you know, kind of the Metallica production process and they've worked with... Bob Rock's one of my favorite producers of all time and they they cut multiple albums with Bob and then they ended up working with Rick Rubin uh, later in their career and they talked about um, working with those two very different producers. Bob's very, very, very engineer-oriented musician, just stellar. Where Rick is... Just very hands off, kind of more ethereal with his way of producing, but despite all of that, Lars said that the, a record or a song or in an audio format production is just about you know making a thousand plus choices, a being a being a being. A being. <laughs> And then hopefully, just getting to the end, and hopefully that all those choices made were, were correct. Uh, I think it's just a, an incredible way to put it, because as a as an engineer, as a as a player, as a singer, as a songwriter, from the moment it's written to the to the time it's a left right master bus, it is just decision after decision after decision. So anyway, not really a question there, but just your thoughts on that.
1: There's um there's almost too many choices when it comes to production. There's way too many. So you have to have a goal, you have to have something in mind, you have to have your idea has to have some sort of direction. Cuz it's got to it's got to get compl- it's it's got to be done at some point. If you're indecisive in the creation or the production phase, your projects never going to get completed. So I understand, because it's happened to me so many times, that stuff just comes to me. Might be the shower. Might be the middle of the night. Might be on the highway while I'm driving. Might be when I'm you know just sitting around. Um, it's important to document that, memorialize it immediately, because how many, how many riffs, how many melodies, how many great lyrical hooks have you lost because you'd be like, oh, I'll remember that tomorrow? Well, thankfully. Thankfully. Even early on? Thankfully.
0: I mean, when things really started cooking and I had my hands on a smartphone back when I was like 17, 18, so that was 20. Some of us
1: are old enough to not have enjoyed right, that our right. entire life.
0: 20, no. So, and thankfully that is one, because you and I have talked a lot about technology. There's a lot of lot of negative, negative to it. But one of the positives is I, I, I get pretty much 98, 99% of whatever whatever in the moment, the things there with the shower with me in case there's something that happens. I, I mean, driving. So, and they, they turn into things. They turn into things.
1: It could be one thing and it could be 12 different things. Right. Well, oh, This is no good here, but it's good enough to be something else. So I'm putting that aside right. and I'll build off that later. Right. I, I think the majority of the lyrics that I wrote before I really got into say production music and music beds, I'm still writing songs on occasion but really before i laid off say in 2000 well i, I, I when i got into grad school so say around 2015 i kind of laid off the music i was still doing some stuff but anyway prior to that when i was in the marine corps i was on post sometimes 6 uh, 6 hours on 6 hours off from friday afternoon till monday afternoon there's nothing to do at <laughs> you know, 4.30 in the morning, standing at a gate. I literally was writing blues lyrics. Right. A lot of those lyrics that I was writing ended up being utilized and uh, put, put to music when I, got, when I was in college. And I got with some childhood friends and some new guys that I was just meeting, and we put together The Sound Hounds. <laughs> and we were just all over the place. That's we, good. We had no genre. You know, we were, we were doing, like, whatever we wanted. And we were gigging, sometimes our own, sometimes warming up for, you know, regionally acknowledged and, and liked bands. Open mics. We had our own shows. We did parties for bikers. You know, whatever. It was just it a, was a mash of stuff that we were doing. But um, the lead singer slash producer slash engineer slash diplomat slash booking agent slash peacekeeper among the band. Um, I won't say his name because he's attained a pretty big level of success and he's on the Conan show now as a, uh, as an engineer. Very cool. He was also at Lowell, the school that I had applied to and he went, he was going for electrical engineering and it just wasn't academics. Non-creative just wasn't for him. Mm. And He wasn't necessarily talented as a musician, but he loved music, and he had a library of knowledge of music in his head, not reading or writing or notes or, you know, the circle of fifths, you know, theory. Yeah. Just, he had a library of knowledge. He knew the people in the band, who their producer was when that album came out, the songs, you know, he just... We encouraged him to go to one of those technical schools for sound engineers. They were like 10 months long, and you got like this certificate. Well, he went to Boston, and I think it was Aerosmith's old studio that was converted. Aerosmith being from Boston. Right. And he went to school there, and so whenever he had a special project, shit, man, he brought in the SoundHounds. He had to do a commercial with background music. <laughs> SoundHounds were in there recording on professional studio equipment. Um, you know, he had to do some other type of project. The Soundhounds were in the studio, you know, recording music originals. Um, and his final exam was where he had, to, he had to cut a song. He had to do a real studio produced song. Right. Here come the soundhounds producing our biggest hit lethal love, you know, and we still have it. Um, and he was traveling with bands, uh, a- cappella bands, and he was doing all of these things. Um, Pine Top Perkins would come to the Blues Alley in D.C. every New Year's Eve. He would call for this guy to come down and, and be his sound man. He was the sound guy at uh, House of Blues in uh, just outside of I think it was in Cambridge or Brockton. He was uh, the sound guy at numerous jazz clubs. He was traveling, and unfortunately for him, and this is just his luck, he had classmates that had immediately gone out to L.A. and landed gigs. Permanent, part-time, temporary, whatever. But they, they were making money. And one of his guys was, man, you got to come out. This is when Conan took over Jay Leno. You got to come out. So he packed his stuff and drove to California. And then Leno said he wanted his show back. And so there was no Conan. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank God he made it. He started freelancing. He started reconnecting with his network. But then Conan came back. And he's on what, TNT Network or whatever? Mm, uh, TBS. All right. Yeah. But they don't pay the licensing fees for BMI or ASCAP. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you ever watch the show, you don't know what music they're playing, or you do because it's now public domain. And if he's doing a spot like they're playing a video game that's got music to it, they don't have the license to play that. So they cut off the sound. And they might do sound-alike they might do a sound-alike skit where they'll change the notes a little bit and they'll change the words and you have to guess what song it is that they're trying to uh, portray. Right, right. But they don't, you know, in case your audience or anybody in your audience doesn't know, if you want to play music publicly, you have to pay a licensing fee to BMI and ASCAP. If you only pay BMI for your license, you can only play BMI-registered music. Same goes for ASCAP. So clubs, restaurants, casinos... You know, department stores might go to Muse which is directly licensed through a publisher who directly licenses from the songwriters themselves, which is what Audio Sparks does. But if you're in a public place, a club, a restaurant, a cabaret, a nightclub that's boom, boom, booming dance music, and they have a pretty good uh, 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 turnout, you know, three, four days a week, they're probably in the hundreds of thousands of paying BMI and ASCAP each. Conan doesn't pay licensing fees, so they play no music. But he's there to engineer, produce, and monitor the music that they are playing, which are either originals that the band members wrote or that they have some other type of direct license to, to play. Uh, so there's other routes is, I guess, what I'm trying right, to get at right. you know, to, to be in music. So we're, uh, we're reset here at the
0: camera's. Refreshed beverages. We're trying to kill this fly in here. I, thing like resurrected from the dead. I hit it. And then just when I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain that. I got it in the clean ass. You didn't just
1: hit it, you hit it with a package with your hand behind the package. Yeah. Which was, although it was against the pillow cushion, so it could have just been stunned. But that thing's got more than one life.
0: No, that thing's, there's definitely some voodoo in that thing <laughs> demonic
1: fly. Probably that'll be a band here pretty soon, <laughs> probably out of l a <laughs> or some l a spillover town like Albuquerque,
0: speaking of um uh, all of that i mean we we've had a lot of conversations about vibration, metaphysics, yeah um existentialism, you know, we could be here all day talking about this stuff, but uh before we get back before we like really top things off with advice and cuz you've got a, a tremendous amount of experience that a lot of the younger viewers who are getting into the industry would really benefit from uh just just thoughts on kind of uh i i just remember us talking about frequency hertz you know um a lot of people don't know about the 440 story and
1: and all that it's it's really interesting stuff you know you know, the Lord has put me on so many different paths. Um, I was a prodigal son for a lot of my life, where I was, you know, Christianity, um, or let me rephrase that, Christianity as it was presented to me wasn't enough for me, so I looked into the Gnostic Uh, gospels that were found in the Nagamati desert in 1945 by some fertilizer guys that were out there digging and they found these pots and, you know, and these things dated back to the same date as, I mean, they were, you know, parchment paper. They weren't like the Sumerian tablets that last forever, you know, and can withstand the elements uh, in in time. These were, you know, they were written on parchment. And the one thing that the ancients did wrong, uh, that the old, very ancients did right is the ancient Sumerians and Babylonian times, they put that cuneiform right into clay tablets and cooked those babies up, and they last forever, because we can still read them today. And that was you know 6,000 years ago. Wow. you know By the time the Greeks came around and the Romans, they were writing on parchment paper. Well, that stuff just goes away. It deteriorates. It doesn't even have to be exposed to the elements. So I, I started, you know, I made my way around through the Christian world and found my, myself right back to Catholicism and branched out again and found New Age and all of these metaphysical, ancient scrolls and studies. And I was like, there's gotta be more to it. This is universal law, this is God's law. Um, I never abandoned Christianity, but I was looking for alternatives to what was um, presented to me or made available to me conventionally or traditionally. And I went a long way around to get there. And what I found was, um, and, I, and I'm i not looking to offend any of your viewers who are not Christian, but I'm an unapologetic Christian. <laughs> what I found was that the Jesus that is taught through traditional Christianity is not necessarily accurate. There's more to Jesus than a lot of people know. And that a lot of these Luciferian things that have been I would say hijacked um, from ancient scripture, ancient um, universal laws. God's universe um, are not ne- are not Luciferian at its base. They're originally God's universal power. Right. Numerology, for instance, gematria, um, Plato's base. You know platonic the platonic solids right right. you know the pineal glands a lot of this stuff has been hijacked by the pagans or luciferians why because it's god's power that they're using against god so yeah i've been i've been out there (laughs) deep down the rabbit hole Uh, i'm careful what i pray for so that it's to the right uh power to the right entity but in those explorations i came across a lot of things that i can find a way to put back scholarly biblically to the source the source being god the creator um including let's say what we spoke about recently solfeggio tones right right god's frequency i believe and so was it uh world war one where some german musical society said you know, I think we're going to get off this frequency. We're going to make Concert A 440. Everybody's like, okay. Well, it's dissonant, I believe, to God's frequency. And so there's, I believe that there's entities, groups, people out there to remove people from the source. Not completely right away, but that is one of their efforts. So when you move Concert A to 440, we're off track a little bit because I know personally through my experience, and in composing solfeggio, when I hear solfeggio tones, 528, for instance, or any, 417, whatever, I feel the resonation. And I'm able to meditate to that so easily. Not every day. There's days where I might, where in the past, I went to meditate and I was so distracted by worldly things that in five minutes I was throwing the headphones down and moving on with my day. Mm. There were other mornings that I thought I could sit here for... For days in God's presence, wow, and get all kinds of answers and material, comedic or music. You know what I mean? <laughs> Funny stuff. I mean, you're just in God's presence, and you're communicating with Source God, right? Right. So yeah, there's a lot of metaphysical things. You know, I used to, I used to pray for a kind of like a channel, but I was always careful. Not always careful, but. I've learned to be careful as to what exactly you're asking, what kind of spirits you're asking to come through and work through you. I'm sure you've had an experience, and some of your viewers have had experiences where they can't, they can't write down fast enough what's coming to them. Yeah. I don't know where it's coming from. Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. I got to get it down. Got to get it down.
1: Faster than you can write. Um, I don't know where it's coming from. Yeah. Uh, I hope it's coming from um, a wholly loving source and not some others, but it didn't do anybody harm, and it wasn't, you know, necessarily vulgar or demonic, whatever I was writing. Um, but I'm careful about who I pray to, how I pray, and and what I ask for, especially in my process. Right, right. There's a there's a there's a let's call it a fraternity out there that um, always. Uh, announces uh, before I'm paraphrasing here. Before we uh, before we embark on any event, we always invoke the power of God. I'm not sure what God they're invoking or who they pray to, and that's a topic for another day. However, the the sentiment is right. Before you embark on anything, whether it's leaving the house, getting on a plane. Or writing a song, or even con- contemplation and or meditation to sit in God's presence, you should invoke a God's power, God's name before you do that. And I, I think that kind of brings me to another topic where uh, we are we talking at the break. You know, I I believe that I have a talent, as unworthy as it may be. Um, I believe that I, I have a God given talent to you know kind of play some instruments. And to compose music and put... Like, I never took a songwriting school or any music classes. I just figured stuff out, which I think is an accomplishment, especially when when I went to interview at, like, Berkeley or Lowell, and they said, listen, you play by ear, and that's a really good talent to have because a lot of people can't do that. They need to read, and I was like, what? What do you mean? You mean there's talented people out there that can't sit and listen to music and play the three chords that they're playing? No. What? Yeah, that yeah. there's yeah. like so you have that yeah. but you need to learn how to read music. Not happening. Nah. You know, so I have, <laughs> I had a god-given talents that get me to a certain point, but I'm as I told you before, I'm, I'm so undisciplined as a person that the last thing I think God wants for me is to be rich and famous because <laughs> I would wreck it. I would I w- I would last maybe a year. And I would I would have just overindulged probably. And so, it's tough to reconcile because here I have these God-given talents, and he's back. There he is. He'll find it. Keep talking. I think I'll take a sip. That's eighty dollars scotch. So be careful with your swipe. You know what? <laughs> I just heard him. He seek He was he was just he's seeking the light. Is he right there? No, he's he's still buzzing around behind right. me somewhere. All right. Anyway, stop to reconcile, but I have these <laughs> God-given talents and they weren't going anywhere. So I kind of prayed. I was like, God, you know, you put this in my life, you give me these talents to do certain things, albeit not at this world recognized level, but you know, it's like where am I going with this? I've spent a lot of time and money and focus, and I'm and I'm giving all my thanks and and graces to you. What's up, man? Yeah, yeah. And it's like the angels. Like I kind of picture like the angels going to God and and, and going, Lord, come on, man. look <laughs> at the time and the effort this guy's making. He hasn't stopped since he was 14 years old writing and give him, throw him a bone throw, or something. Throw the guy a bone. Give him something. God's like. <laughs> All right, but it's not going to be to just give them something. So you would, you know, I get these small bed placements on, you know, production of production music on some, you know, cable shows, and for me, that means the world to me. Like I said before, not too many people have music right, on television, right. and I'm almost thankful that I don't become rich and famous because uh, it's not for me. I have a family, and I I want to remain grounded. And how many times have you seen people rise to stardom, yeah, and then just just get, you know, the world just takes them out, or they take themselves out. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, uh, I, I, I totally, I totally understand. And I mean, I was on the phone yesterday with a good friend of ours. Uh, I'll, I'll keep her name out of it for now. She's been on the show. Um, anyway, just crazy conversation about uh the industry. Oh, I'll just leave it at that. And. With that being said, may- maybe just some Uncle-esque advice,
1: <laughs> Uncle Dean advice, uh,
0: yeah. you know, what, I mean, you and I have talked about this for hours uh, at length, uh, on the phone, in person, at shows, whatever, um, but what, what, are the, what are the major points for you?
1: Study the industry, get to know what really happens, how the process works for them. Get to understand. You know, Songwriters Market Guide. I think they still publish it. I haven't bought it in years, but it was a, it was a great resource for me because they take the time to explain in the pre-chapters to outside songwriters, up-and-coming songwriters, aspiring songwriters. Here's how the industry works. Don't send them a cassette, for instance. That's stapled with a hundred staples on the outside that's also certified mail return receipt, they're not gonna take it for a number of reasons. One, it shows you're a rookie, they don't have any inclination to open that package and hear whatever's in there. Two, they're not gonna cut their hands open uh on the staples. Right. Number three, the fact that you sent it certified mail means that you have some t- you're litigious in nature, you're gonna sue them um. You you already have intentions to sue them because you sent them certified receipt. So the Songwriters Market Guide is a great public- publication and resource, not just for industry contacts, but the process. Here's how it works. Here's how songwriters from the outside get music heard. Here's how you need to go about this. Call ahead. Hey, uh, I know you don't take uns- unsolicited submissions, but I have some songs. Here's my background. Here's my resume. Uh, here's my placements. Or... I'd just like an opportunity to be heard. You'd be surprised uh, at how receptive sometimes you'll come across an, an artist and repertoire person for a major label, an indie label, uh, a producer, a manager, a music publisher, assistant who's a student doing an internship there, and they might say, hey, go ahead, send it in, put it to my attention, and I'll make sure it gets heard. If you make the call, if you put out the email, calls are better, actually. But, it, you know, so that's a great resource don't jump into the industry trying to take it over without knowing how the industry works and how to approach it first. You'll get blacklisted in a second. Right. Next, don't deviate from the process of how the industry works. Don't try to you know, backdoor it. They'll, they'll know that you're a rookie and you'll get blacklisted. Um, don't send anything out that is not perfect. Perfect. If your mom says it's beautiful and perfect and that's a hit song go back and work on it some more because your mom bless her heart is not a music industry expert don't send anything out that you've done at home if you're not a polished uh, music creator and engineer for instance my vocal songs verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus you know outro or verse bridge verse bridge some other type of deviation bridge outro with vocals i sent it to a guy in chicago that was doing my stuff and i was co-producing it with him right down to the note right down to the you know every instant of that song i was co-producing yay or nay auditioning different types of sounds and instruments all the way through with his help and he was awesome 500 dollars. I was getting stuff played on every continent that was getting produced out of his studio because I knew better than to try to perform it myself, engineer it myself, you know, and produce it and finalize it. Not going to happen. Now instrumentals, yeah, I'm putting you know keyboard stuff together and you know spreading out my frequencies on the you know and, and using all my tools to make sure you know that I'm framing this good. And when I when I get to mastering, I'm just pushing volume to get some you know, reduced the noise ratio. I I got proficient in that enough and a lot of my stuff got placed, but I didn't send stuff out like I did in the 90s that was completely just raw. (laughs) If you can't, if you think you have a good song, a good melody, a good chord progression and great lyrics, find somebody local on Craigslist or otherwise to just do a, a, a guitar vocal or piano vocal and send it out raw. Because producers don't necessarily, music publishers will even tell you. Producers don't necessarily want the canvas all filled in with your beautiful painting. They might want just the sketch and the rest of the paint, or the rest of the canvas bare so they can fill in the color. Now, a great producer might hear a song and hear the potential and go, all right, we're gonna get rid of all this. And right. now we're going to bring in our own stuff to make it modern because my stuff always comes out 80s-ish. Right. Don't know right. why, but that's where I come from, the 80s. So I might be better off doing guitar vocal, piano vocal, and getting it sent out because the idea is still there and it leaves a lot of canvas unspoken for for a producer, an artist, an A&R to put the rest together. That's not how I roll. I throw it all out there. Right. A lot of my stuff's overproduced. So don't. But the key here is not to send anything out until it's professional, I've never spent five thousand dollars on a studio on a, on, a, on a studio demo, but I have spent 15, and that might be a little low, but it got me to a a, a professional quality sound in Nashville that I needed to be at to at least get it taken seriously right, right. next. While you're pursuing your fame and fortune as a songwriter, composer, music creator, um, I would say it's okay to join contests, you know, which they have in the Songwriters Market Guide. I've won international lyric contests, and um, one of them that I won, they put me with a husband and wife team out of Nashville who are published songwriters. They've written for Patty LaBelle, Snoop Dogg, and a variety of other artists. Wow. And... They took my original lyrics, to which I had music to. They kind of didn't, they weren't interested. They put their own music and we kind of co-produced this final product. And uh, that's the stuff I was pitching like to, I mean, they said I was the pitchingest songwriter, pitchingest co-writer they ever uh, came across. Because I was pitching the crap out of that thing to everybody (laughs) Uh who would listen to it. And I kind of gave up and I I hit them up and I was like, um, you know, I kind of give up on this song. They were like, don't. Because we've written songs that didn't get attention for 20 or 25 years and then finally got published. Wow. So don't give up on a song. Wow. Keep it going. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't put it on the shelf. Keep it in your catalog, active repertoire. Um, So joining contests is cool, but don't pay to play. Don't pay to get your stuff heard. You shouldn't have to. Pitch it to music publishers. Valid, legit music publishers, whether in Nashville, New York, LA, the three music hubs, or... Outside kind of uh, minor hubs like Dallas, Seattle, legit publishers aren't going to charge you to hear your music. They're just not going to do it. That's just not how the industry works. So if you come across a website, a web page, a group, a library where they're saying, yeah, just send us 25 bucks and we'll listen to your music. They have no intentions of doing anything. I once got caught up in Nashville with somebody who was literally in music row and established that said, I listen to your music and I think it's good. I, I can't place it with any particular artists right now. But what I, what I can offer you is this. Song plugger, avoid at all costs. She wanted like 250 bucks a month. She was going to pitch my music to all of these people in Music Square and send me a report every month of who she uh, pitched it to. And that kind of caught me off guard. So I contacted Songwriters uh, Guild, Songwriters Guild. And I said, I'm a little suspicious of this. And they were like, who said this? And I told them who. And they were like, well, you did the right thing to call and tell us this. Because that's highly unusual, especially from somebody of her stature. Because she's successful Mm -hmm. as a music publisher. And it must have got their attention because uh, she stopped kind of nagging me about it and I, I avoided that. So never pay to have your music accepted by a publisher. In fact, it used to be the other way around. If, if you pitched to a publisher and they liked your material, two things happened back in the 90s. One, they sent you a single songwriter contract and they advanced you five grand. And two... They asked you what else you got in your catalog, right, right, now everything's flipped, oh yeah, yeah, now it hasn't completely flipped because publishers shouldn't be charging you to hear your music, right, many of them have become completely uh, you can't you can't submit, you can't pitch unsolicited, you need to have an industry contact refer you, they need to know you, somebody needs to call them ahead of you, whatever right, but right. it doesn't say if you call them, cold call them. Before sending them something, and say, "Listen, you know, I don't. I know you don't take unsolicited material, but here's the deal. Here's who I am. Here's what I've done. I'd like to send you a song, I think you, you might like. It's going to take 45 seconds of your time. Can I send it to you? You'd be surprised. You might get it. Uh, like I said before, uh, you how might, many will say yes? Or uh, you might get a yes. Okay. And I did. I was making cold calls from landlines back in the '90s, and I was calling people. Like at Arista or Landslide or Curbside or wow. whatever. I was wow. calling peop- I was calling labels. Were you
0: I mean, were you dedicating a certain amount of
1: hours per week to oh this? My God. Or was
0: it just kind of like, yeah, I'm gonna I feel like making some calls today? Or was it really regimented for you?
1: I was getting the songwriter's market guide. I was creating my own database and my little word processor and because we didn't have laptops at the time, and right. I was I was creating records of who First, I would go through is like, okay, this is good this, good. this one's good. This one's good. This one's good to pitch to because they they do that kind of music. Right. Whether it's southern rock, blues, or country. It,
0: it was methodical. It was
1: planned. And then I was starting to make calls, and then I would document. Yeah. Called, left a message. Called, they said they haven't listened to my, you know, they get, they received the submission, but they haven't listened to it. Right. You have to be professional about it, um, or they're not going to take you. You're going to get blacklisted. So study, don't pay, reach out. Try to make some contacts. You'd be surprised. Are you going to get a lot of hung- hang up calls? Yeah. You're going to yeah. get a lot of rejections? Yeah. If you can't handle rejection, go find another hobby, sculpt or paint or whatever. But I have a stack of these rejections. Proud to have them because at least they took the time to get back to me. Um, but again, paying to have your stuff heard is a red flag. Music X ray uh I, there's so many websites that I was got affiliated with and spent so much money for naught because nothing ever came out of those nothing I got one contract in Nashville through uh, an indie label um unfortunately nothing came out of it but the guy sent me a single song contract that it was beyond the days where they sent you the advance of 5 grand because they had a lot of confidence they were going to get it placed um And there was a reversion clause in the contract. That's always important because you don't want to tie up something exclusively with one entity and then never be able to get that back and work it in other areas of the industry. So I fought with them about, because they were still showing up in BMI as having control over the song and I was calling them, emailing them, writing them, you know, whatever. And I finally got control of the song back and I'm able to work it now in other areas and it's getting placed. You know, you don't have to be at a top-notch music publisher to get heard. Jingle Punks is not necessarily top-notch. I would say uh, Audio Socket or Crucial Music are pretty top-notch. Look at the credits after any program and slow it down or stop it and see who provided the music. Who or placed. They- right. Yeah. So there is a particular <clears throat> music library that I absolutely can't get into. They've rejected all of my material. I even co-wrote a song with a guy who is like a major star with this library. And I don't know if it's because he saw that I was a co-writer or whatever. It got that, he submitted three songs. One of them is the one we co-wrote together. The other two got accepted, and the one I co-wrote with him got rejected. Yet I'm watching a show that I have music on, through Jingle Punks, and at the end of the show, music provided by Jingle Punks and that library. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just as good, bro. I'm on the same shows as you. You know, and what I hear about this guy on the boards, get on the forums and right. look on the internet. You'll find, you know, a music library report. They're charging now, but the information is worthy uh, because there's a lot of inveterate very experienced successful songwriters composers in that board that share a lot of music tips and whatnot and when I was you know visiting that board a lot I I was I was seeing this guy in particular that runs this particular library is really finicky and picky to the point where you created your one of your best projects and it's perfect it's like it's not going to get any better and he's He's calling me up and saying, we like this song. We want to sign it. But here's what you need to do. <laughs> you need to pull back on this and add some cowbell and then send us the stems and we're going to tweak that. And then we're going to do, and you need to take out this whole 12 second section because it just, it, it defeats the rest of, defeats the purpose of, of the piece. It's like, he's like, whoa. And, and songwriters actually acquiesce to what he wants wow. because he gets placements. Right, right. But- I'm not in his library, and I'm getting placements on the same shows. So, so there you go. I <clears throat> Mad props to Jingle Punks. <laughs> um, do your research. Don't pay to get placed. Don't pay to get heard. Get the songwriter's market guide. Make some cold calls to publishers. It doesn't have to be a high-end publisher, because how did high-end publishers get there? They broke out by getting a placement, by giving a songwriter a chance. you got to start. They didn't start at the top. They worked their way up there. Publishers come and go, man. Libraries come and go. Come and go. Um, The good ones are the ones that recruit the good talent and maintain and build their catalog. Some publishers get too big. Um, I think it's called Music Library. They have like hundreds of thousands of things in their catalog with very little metadata to describe it. So it's by pure luck. Um, I get heard reports all the time from that thing, but nothing's ever come from it. Right, right. I think I had, and and I was paying for pro, you know, pro level, whatever, you know, to get the inside. Did nothing for me. There was a movie that came out, uh, the Rest in Peace Department. <laughs> there were like these spirits that died and came back to to handle the demons that were still walking the earth. Um, you know, it was a kind of a comedy, semi. Marvel kind of thing. And I was up. I had a song that was up for that movie through that particular library. Didn't make it as, as happens so many times, but again, you can't, you can't hinge at all on that one opportunity. So right, right. yeah. Young songwriters need to know the industry and get very familiar with how it works. Keep working, polish your stuff until it can't be polished anymore. Don't send anything out. that's not ready and send it to the right folks. Alyssa songs, hit me up if you have any questions. I mean, that's, that's where to go. All right, so
0: I've got a fun thing that I like to do at the end uh, called the shootout section, but apparently you have some questions for me first.
1: I'd like to challenge you on a couple of things. Oh, boy. You're like my son when people ask him, uh, so what instruments do you play? And he says... It'd be easier if you asked me what instruments I don't play, right? Because you play just about everything. Not just about everything, but... uh, You play quite a few instruments.
0: uh, Enough to probably end up in the psych ward.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So my question to you is this. I said early on, because I knew I lacked the talent regardless of how much I practiced that I gave up the rock star dream. It's probably a good thing because I'd be dead Mm -hmm. already. I'd have been dead a long time ago. But I pursued music from an outside as a songwriter to give to other people or to have it played on other people's projects. You are still pursuing uh, success as a performer. I'd like to ask you if you have considered pitching your music as hard as it is to let your babies go. Have you considered pitching some of your... Probably your more hideous hideous material to other folks that that might want to record it. Have you considered that? I'm actually working
0: with, I'd say the names, but I I can't because I'm not contractually in yet. Um, I have the contracts. Um, We're looking at them. I'm just now really starting that process. Yeah. Um, It's liberating, isn't it? It's, what's cool for me is just knowing that, okay, this is me, this is what I do, but I've got, I've got stuff that's very, very, you know, one, whatever, one, one, six, four, five or whatever, very cookie cutter. And I'm not saying that to knock pop music. Six, one, six, minor, four, five whatever 1 minor 645 yeah, you okay. know whatever yeah. i have one of those <laughs> you probably
1: have 25 no, no, of i just those. have one okay i remember it very specifically yeah cuz yeah. i didn't know where to go from there so
0: yeah so you know you know what i mean like the 3 to 4 chord thing and but blues is like that too everything comes from blues originally but uh yeah i i it really wasn't my idea i got approached by um Uh, A fellow that was on this show, believe it or not, a few months back, and we have just started co-writing together, and um, just kind of, it's like, yeah, why not? Why not? So it's got my gears turning in a different direction, because I I can, me personally, I can write pretty much anything, and uh, I'm not sure why that is. You're prolific. Maybe. I don't know. Not maybe. You are. So, yeah, uh, recently, yes. And excited to do more of that. We'll we'll
1: see where it goes. Have you ever considered taking some of your professional productions of any particular songs that you think are commercial? I hate to use the word commercial, but worthy of placement, um, not just to be recut or um, recorded by a particular act for an album, but have you considered placement as production music for other artistic projects, such as movies, uh, commercials. Look at Black Keys, bro. Mm -hmm. Two dudes with a four-track in their frigging garage, banging out melodies that you swear you heard before, but you haven't because they're fresh. And every they're making more on syncs for commercials, Gillette, whatever. (laughs) Every one of their songs... Pieces of their songs are being placed in commercials or whatever. And they're making a ton on sync licenses rather than, you know, they tour and make money and they make album sales, mechanical royalties. They get radio play. They're getting, you know, performance royalties. But the majority of the Black Keys money comes through sync placements. You know, it's not selling your soul. It's sharing your music with other media. Have you considered that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think. And again, it's it, it's more
0: of... Uh, I think you have to really be settled. And some people may disagree with me w- with this. I know that... And from the conversations you and I have had, it, this stuff just takes time to, to to really find who you are, what you do. And I know that the production stuff that I was doing years ago... I mean, I, I remixed my first two records yeah. and, and put them out because... Uh, I totally took them off the internet because I just, you know, I cringed every time I heard them knowing what, what they could have been. So I just did that.
1: Because an artist is never, uh, absolutely satisfied with their work. 10 years from now, you go back and go, there's so many things I could have done differently. Once in a while
0: it, it, it's just, you know, there's nothing to change. I think, <laughs> at least I've experienced, I have experienced I, I that. There have, are those I moments. I might have a couple. I might yeah, have a I, I'm sure you do. There's
1: absolutely nothing I can do. And they're, have, always, they're, they're
0: always, when they weren't planned, you know, shitty mic, whatever. That gave the perfect effect. No, they, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it might have been a crappy mic, but kind of gives it character.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing, is like, there's so many little nuances that you have to learn and, and that's, uh, I think it's just a, a thing where some people, I, I would say like myself,
1: I don't know. There's just, yeah. So like the point, the point is this. As a non-performing songwriter, let's say, or as any songwriter, even one who's performing but not really getting there, you still have great material that you've created. There's so many opportunities. There's a ton of opportunities, but you have to be careful. See, one of the mistakes that I did, that I committed, as even though I was studying the industry, I was over anxious on getting heard and successful. There's a fine line between being unselfish with your music and getting it out to be heard and being and whoring out your music. I hate to use that term, but that's really what that's I true. did. I gave it to anybody who would take it. I mean, maybe seven or eight years ago, my wife brings me a $90 deposit on a shared account that we used to have like at a, a Bank of America. I, I, you know, I, I no longer bank with banks. It's credit unions only because of personal convictions that I have. But I'm still on her bank account by name. And right. she was like, hey, do you know who this thing is? Um, blank and Blank Music. <laughs> Because there's a $90 deposit in here. And I was like, eh, they must have used my music. And those are my royalties. She was like, uh, you know, can I have it? Yeah, I have to keep the 90 I don't even know who it was. <laughs> because my stuff is all over the internet. Right, which, right. I, I mean, I don't even remember how to get back. Like, you know, duck dollars or dollar die. You know, I'm in so many different websites. I don't know if I'm getting ripped off. If they're using my stuff without license, without paying me. Who knows? I went. I went too far. So you have to be careful with who you go to. Now, there was one point I wanted to make about exclusivity that I forgot to mention. And there was a major mistake. And I'm pretty sure it was during a Super Bowl commercial. And it might even have been the Black Keys because they're so prevalent in uh, national commercials, like major commercials that... um, and this is why a lot of libraries and publishers – publishers have always been pretty much exclusive. But music libraries, not so much. They are moving to exclusivity now. And here's one of the reasons why. And I'll give you another, uh, another reason right after this. The first reason that I can remember is there was, during the Super Bowl, a Hyundai commercial, for instance. And I'm pretty sure it was Hyundai. Came out with background music like, say, of the Black Keys. Pretty sure it was, but don't quote me. But there was a piece of music that came out as background, really aggressive, powerful music scape to background whatever they were showing in this car commercial. The very next commercial, like friggin' Gillette, same song. Wow. Oh man, there was corporate heads rolling left and right. Right. How right. could this possibly happen? Right. So a lot of the libraries, which is. Where this music may have come from, not necessarily a publisher, but maybe a music library, and there's a difference between the two. Yeah. However, music libraries act as publishers. Right, right. Uh, in- insofar as control, administration, and royalty. You're going to get, if you're the only songwriter, you're going to get 100% of the songwriter royalties on the back end or the upfront on the sync license, and they're going to get 100% of the publisher license, right. unless it's non exclusive and somebody else had something to do with it. So that's when heads started to roll, and it was like a major mistake because people around the nation who were watching you know, the halftime show at Super Bowl was like, wasn't that the same song from the last yeah. week? Anybody who was paying attention <laughs> heard it, but that was a major gaffe. The other reason um, music libraries are moving towards the traditional music publisher kind of format of business is, let's say you have a song at four different music publishers. Let's use libraries for now. Let's say you have a song at Audio Socket, Crucial Music, Audio Sparks, and Jingle Punks, right? They all all get a lead for the same opportunity for a song pitch, and your song happens to be perfect for what they're looking for. Like, you know, I was getting pitched for Duck Dynasty. This is perfect for Duck Dynasty. All four of those libraries submit the song your song, for that scene. Well, the music supervisor gets four of those songs. He's like, I already listened to this twice, three times, four times. Who do I give it to? Who do I put on the cue sheet? Because the cue sheet for your listeners is whatever music they do use goes on a cue sheet, and they submit that to the pros, the performing rights organizations, BMI and ASCAP. They log it. They calculate it. And they figure out how much you're going to get paid on the back end for your royalties every time it's it's uh, it's it's broadcast. Which of the four music libraries does the music supervisor use? They'll usually tag it like your song, you know, uh, Jamie's Gun. I don't want to have any you know copyright issues here. You know, Jamie's Gun. When you get it to audio, when you get it to Jingle Punks, they're going to put Jamie's Gun jp right audio socket might ask you to change the name of the song entirely well that goes against my creative process we don't care right but it's out there in other places and we need to know that it's going to be ours so they say the gun of jamie we know it's ours instead of jamie you know whatever right it's just a lot of confusion and i think that's why the music library i know that's why the music libraries are going to exclusivity yeah no confusion and they're the only ones that have it to be pitching and it's never going to get overlapped with somebody else
0: I'll I'll add this based on the question that you just asked me which is what yeah liberating in the sense of that you can uh, you can write something that's just for pitching so I can write I can write material for me that I'm going to use for my music but I can also put on just the, the pitching writing hat and just go to town right that's i like that
1: now a little advice with regard to that you are a very talented songwriter performer i was co-writing with another local guy and i'm not a big fan of co-writing and as an off uh, just just to divert a little bit Co-writing I'm happy to share ideas and converge on one particular point, but when it comes to the administration of songwriting and song pitching, you end up facing a lot of hurdles. You might want to go with a particular publisher who has great ideas and pitching opportunities for your piece. But that there's a marriage there comes contracts and, right. and verbiage and clauses, and you might there might be an opportunity coming up that your music library wants to use this for, and your songwriter's holding you back, your co-writer's holding you back because he doesn't want to sign for this. And I don't like this word. And I don't like it. so. For me, I'm no, I, I don't co-write anymore it, because it gets in the way of my administration and, and pitching abilities. I
0: just now started actual like from a business standpoint, started doing it. It's, and this is after I've written hundreds
1: of songs. You know. It's almost like you have to come to terms with your co-writer with the not just the, it's the idea. Be right. It's got. It's not just the creative process that you have to kind of be in sync with them. It's the post-creative the, process, the mission, the administrative. Yes, you have the creative, and you have the administrative. That's it. Make sure that you're in line with the co-writer on both of those aspects before you, you know, engage in this endeavor because there's a lot of headaches at the other end. It's great advice. It's great. So um, I was co-writing with this guy, super talented. Great <clears throat> songwriter, great guitarist, very creative, very fresh and unique, uh, was, was gigging acoustically. And he, we met to co-write um, something, and he said, you know, I auditioned for um, Jingle Punks, and I got rejected. And I was like, what? How's that? I mean, what did you pitch them? What songs that you that you wrote? Because I was familiar with this catalog. I mean, he had a lot of good stuff. Oh no, I didn't pitch that stuff to him. <laughs> well, what did you pitch to him? It was like a Casio computer. I was like, you're kidding me, bro. This is what right, you. Right. He tried to create like melody, ambiance, and music bed. With like some, and he didn't, you know. It was like this is completely different from who you are and what you create. What the heck is this stuff? Of course, they're going to reject that. No, bro, do me a favor. Stop and don't pitch anything. You're going to lose credibility with them. Once you're rejected once, they might be willing to hear you a second time, but after that, they're not going to. They're just not even going to respond anymore. Don't pitch anything else until at least give me a, an opportunity to hear it. Not that I'm an expert, but I'm in a lot of libraries and I've had material accepted. I know what they're looking for. I mean, you might be a great songwriter and performer, but you, if you want to start pitching to publishers and in, in, uh, libraries and you're not going to send the stuff out to get done or perform it yourself at a professional studio, don't send it. If you're not going to be your own engineer, where you can polish stuff and send quality material, don't send it. You're going to get rejected.
0: And they they want things that are totally in house because it makes their job easier because they don't have to herd cats and go get permission from the other writers. You mean exclusive uh, exclusive stuff? Just music music houses in
1: general, publishing houses, uh, placement houses in general. Nobody wants to compete with another with with another entity that has rights to your stuff
0: well and they want they in in the sense of they they don't want to have any extra work created like in other words they want to know that you have everything written off ahead of time if you did collaborate with somebody that all the paperwork is done so it's less work that you have to do if you can keep everything in house you're doing the engineering you're writing 100 of the material you could tell them up front i own all the rights i don't need to hurt oh cats
1: yeah. You're not going to be able to pitch to a music library if you don't if you don't control all the rights, if you don't control all the rights, <laughs> <laughs> if you don't control all the rights, then they need for your co-writer or co-writers to sign the contract for that song right. or songs, right. and that just becomes a headache for me. So I don't yeah want to yeah do it. no now if somebody reached out to me. Like I told you, the the Canadian guy that lives in Costa Rica you know, reached out to me and and I was like, yeah, all right, let's do it. You know, I got locked out of the music of that song because I don't, I I normally don't like to do this, but they had music that was established and terrible lyrics because English is not their first language. Mm. Uh, French is. And they're not country music writers and I happen to be. So I rewrote the whole song, but what, what I told him up front is, I want one-third of the music and the lyrics. And he was like, oh, yeah, of course. One-third of the whole song as one-third co-writer, even though I only did the lyrics. All of the lyrics. To the music, which is tough to do. Right, right. You know, I think almost any songwriter said would say, I want to get the lyrics on paper and wrap the music around it. Because that gives, that way I'm not taking anything out of my message through the lyrics, and the music becomes fresh and unique and unpredictable because I'm wrapping the, the music around those words. A great example of somebody who's done that that I recognize at an early age, Baja. She's like from East, you know Czechoslovakia or somewhere in Eastern Europe, kind right. of a jazzy pop, but she never compromised on her lyrics. Always wrote, you. I mean, I haven't asked her personally, I can just tell. She never compromised because the music always was adapted the, to, to the words, th- to the words. Yeah. you know who else shade
0: yeah
1: um luther vandros was a bit I, you know again i don't like to use the word commercial but he got his message through and wrapped the music around it um so you can recognize that you can also recognize when somebody just has a good riff and they just throw in some lyrics you know like nirvana who cares? We didn't care. I've seen interviews. hey we didn't care what we were saying. We just <laughs> to fill in the blanks, you know. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, back to back to co-writing, man. It's be careful in your approach. Make sure you have everything in line, both on the creative and the administrative side with your co-writer. So, uh, you want to do a shootout or some yeah, lightning yeah, yeah. round? or Where
0: I just say I say a word. Oh and boy, and you just say a word back.
1: Isn't that word association or you, yeah, you like could a psychological test you, you, or something? You could, you could say that. All right. Does it have to be music related or anything?
0: Well, I mean, they're all pretty much music related. Okay. Yeah. You know.
1: All right. Let me. But uh, but you don't have. I'm not. No.
0: You do whatever you whatever you know comes to mind. This is right. a judgment-free zone. <laughs>
1: Especially with a few ounces of scotch in it. Right, right. Alright, yeah, I'm free you know, to go. I'm free to go. With
0: some fly Yeah you some know, fly some residue. fly on the side. Fly schmeg. Fly on the side. <laughs> Good song title. <laughs> uh drums. Say again? Drums. Beats. Guitar. Strums.
1: Bass. Flicks. Thumps. Keyboards. Uh, keyboards, melody, uh, uh, song, creation,
0: mood, emotion, that's good. Uh, vibe, resonance, studio, money, (laughs) ah, that's good. Live, life, live, 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 real, writing, Cathartic. Scotch. Buzz. Cigar.
1: Relaxation.
0: The last one, the most important, pizza.
1: Deuce. <laughs> 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 yep, yeah, had to go there. I'm sorry, man.
0: Uh, I ask everybody this question at the end, which is, if you could go back in time to your 15-year-old self, knowing what you know now, what would you tell them?
1: Smarten the F up. (laughs) I would love to go back to my 15-year-old self and slap myself. Yeah. You know, get get your stuff together. (laughs) I blew my whole 20s, man. And I'm not sorry for it because they were a great experience. Right. But, you know, I went to the Marine Corps at 17, <clears throat> got out, went to college, was ready to do business in my early 20s, went down to Miami, and just partied. I mean, it was like I was living on vacation, and I had to show up somewhere just to get a paycheck, you know, during the day. Right. Um, and then I just traveled, and just I, just, I was living like a rock star in my 20s. And I was approaching my 30-year-old self, and my father sat me down and said, hey, uh, Don't you think it's about time you settled down? Pop, what do you mean? What are you talking about? So you're going to be 30 this year, aren't you? Yeah? Well, I mean, what the hell are you doing with your life? I mean, don't you have friends that are married with kids and jobs and houses? I was like, yeah. (laughs) You don't even have a job. You're pouring concrete, man. What you were doing at 14 years old, in and out of the Marine Corps, in and out of college, you're back up here in New York pouring concrete. What's... I was like, pop, whoa, whoa, you're bringing me down, man. But it really <laughs> 30 hurt. 30 hurts, you'll see. 30 is no longer your twenties, man. Right, and right. you know, the world kind of has expectations of you right. when you're 30. You can't just be a flop when you're 30. You I'm need already to be, I'm already feeling it in my mid twenties. The expectations of the world, oh, yeah. of the people who love you, your friends, your family. Yeah. Like uh no. I give I'll give everybody their 20s cuz I gave myself my 20s. Right. I'm never going to hold what people are doing in their 20s against them. Look, I had I was already accomplished and established. Marine Corps, college degree with honors. Now I have the freedom to go do whatever I want as long as I'm still in my 20s. But 30? Yeah. Time to time to figure some things out. Mm. And so I went and got uh the job that I just retired from I had a professional career see that's the thing that I I haven't mentioned yet but I was never willing to starve for my craft was my songwriting good yes it's been affirmed by the industry they've recognized it so I know it was was I willing to move to Nashville LA or New York and eat out of dumpsters and live in my car and be cold knocking and pitching my material nope wasn't willing to do it Mm. was I willing to have a real job with a steady paycheck to support myself and my family and raise a family uh, and do this on the side as a hobby and see if something could come out of it. I was willing to go to those lengths and I put a lot of time and money. I sacrificed from time from my family, money from my household, but I was never willing to starve for it. And, and maybe that's one of the requirements, Garth Brooks, for instance. I mean, if you ask me, that dude can't sing, but he can write and he can perform. And he moved to Nashville and lived in his truck and ate out of garbage cans for a while until somebody found him. Yeah, and Nashville's really competitive. Yep. You're almost better off not going and sending stuff in because um, everybody at the Bluebird Cafe is awesome and should be on a, on a label, but they're not. But, you know, he was willing to starve for his craft. I wasn't. Uh, wow. Backup plan. I got to have some, I got to have an income. I gotta um, have something that um, I can rely on and do this on the side. Maybe that's why I never made it huge, but I made it not huge. <laughs> uh, your information—you
0: said it earlier, but we'll have it in the description box below or to the sides, depending yeah. on the—if uh, it's you know, if people are listening, watching on YouTube or if they're on Spotify, iTunes, iHeart, all those. Uh, where can they find you?
1: uh com one word Alyssa songs my first born name um a lot of people are after that name it's uh i've been offered money i've been tied up with uh some litigation for chicks named Alyssa who write songs um but i'm not giving it up so com i can be found on jingle punks audio sparks uh I also, somebody came into Audio Sparks and took a chunk of my catalog and put it on Spotify. So I have a number of songs actually cool. on Spotify under, I think, and Amazon, like Dean Anthony Caputo. So I don't know how it got there. Um, <laughs> and I make like, you know, a dollar per a million spins. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not going to retire off it. But again, I'm just a humble songwriter. I'm glad that it's being heard and that there's, there's people that like it and listen to it, favorite it, whatever. This has been fun. This has been good.
0: Yeah, Jay. Fly is still alive.
1: He's right there. Yeah, he just won't go away. He just won't go away. We should have let him uh, drink a, uh, yeah. a, a little bit of the scotch. He'd be passed out by now.
0: Um. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, and we will uh, see you on the next one. Peace. So this is a little bonus. <laughs> Got him. Do you have any final words? He pushed he pushed too far.